So welcome everyone to this CSA podcast. This is a first. We're doing a, uh, a joint discussion with a couple of uh, cybersecurity specialists. Uh, myself, I'm Steve Mustard. I'm based in Houston, Texas. I've been working in the automation profession for 30 years as an engineer. And for a lot of that time, I've been involved in cybersecurity of automation and control systems. I have also been involved with the International Society of Automation for a long time, and uh, I was the 2021 president of that society. My guest today, or my co-podcast host today, is someone who, if you don't know this person, then you need to do a bit more research into industrial cybersecurity, because this person has been involved in industrial cybersecurity since before it was even a thing. Uh, so I'm going to hand over and let him introduce himself. Over to you. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Bob Rad Vanosky. Uh, for those of you who may or may not necessarily know me, I am the co-founder of the mailing list SCADASEC. We have been operational for a little bit over 15 years now. I'm also the creator of something called Project Shine that was used to sample control systems, IoT systems, and industrial IoT systems that were publicly accessible via the internet via the Shodan search engine. And presently, I'm working within the energy sector. I'm working as a cybersecurity engineer in matters of trying to safeguard our, our grid, uh, among some other things. Back to you, Steve. Thank you, Bob. So I've got a bunch of things I thought we could talk about today, Bob, and I wanted to start with a simple question. So there's so much awareness about cybersecurity, and especially in industrial cybersecurity. We're spending a lot of time and money and resources on it. Why are we still having serious major incidents? I think part of the problem is the lack of understanding. I think also the lack of awareness as a result of the lack of understanding. What I mean by that is the term cybersecurity is nebulous. It can mean IT, it can mean OT, it can mean control systems. It is a plethora of things. As a result of that, how you determine which areas need to be addressed is part of the issue. And as a result of that, you tend to go into a scope creep. You end up finding as you dig down deeper and deeper and deeper that you have many more rabbit holes and it gets more expensive as you drill along. The other thing also is, is that you have several regulated industries of varying sectors. And as a result, over a period of time, I found out that the regulatory requirements of many of these sectors, especially the energy sector, that too continues to evolve, where regulators start determining whether or not should we secure this part down, should we secure that part down. And as a result of that, again, you have scope creep. As a result of that, because with scope creep, your cost starts going up exponentially. The, the third point is that I honestly don't think that a lot of these secu OT security consulting companies really know what they're looking for. I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that they're treating control systems as if they're IT systems, where their focus is mostly on the information rather than the, on the operation. A lot of them will say, well, control systems need information in order to operate. Not entirely so. Control systems can operate autonomously without the use of information. That's the whole purpose. And I think that's part of the, the, the third 
point in that there's that fundamental lack of understanding. You're only looking at the IT side. You're not looking at the engineering or operational side. The two need to come together in order for them to be effective. And that too explains the reason why we're still spending time trying to figure things out as a community, as a society, and why the price tag continues to keep going up. Okay. So I know that one of the things that you've been working on amongst the other things you mentioned at the beginning is uh, Skidmark, so your database to collect information about industrial cybersecurity incidents. So how does that inform you about how things are going? Do you see a trend uh, in a positive or negative direction? What kind of things are you seeing from the data that you're collecting in there? Well, I don't necessarily per se see a trend. There is um, a couple of things. So first and foremost, Skidmark is supposed to be a publicly accessible database. The idea behind it is to be a repository similar to what RISC was. I'm trying to think there were some other databases that exist out there that were publicly available. And I'm trying to remember for life of me, I can't remember them. But the idea is to search for publicly accessible publicly available, free of charge information that you can use, aggregate the information, and allow the user or the viewer of the site to come to their own decision or conclusion. The thing, though, is is that nothing on the site, nothing in the database contains any confidential information. There's no leaked information, no FOUO, no classified, none of that. It is free love. It's available for anyone who wishes to have it. It has taken me seven years to get to a point where I can start constructing the database into something more meaningful. Determination of what kind of fields need to be defined, the relevance of the fields, create sections according to areas of reference and levels of importance. And it has taken me a long time. A lot of it because of discussion with other engineers throughout the community. One of The other aspects is the database as it stands right now is only partially correct because some fields will show one thing, other fields will show something else. I am in the process of standardizing that, but because this is a part-time endeavor, it has taken me a long time. And the whole purpose behind this is to create an application where you can just go for the more repeatable fields, just go ka-ding, 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 ka-ding. And instead of it taking upwards of a week to get one case, now it can take you one hour or less to get one case, thereby making it more streamlined. The primary purpose behind Skidmark is to not necessarily focus on just the attacks. And I think part of the problem that society as a whole keeps forgetting is attacks are only one aspect of things. There are other aspects that should be included, such as accidents and non-accidents. Now, the difference between the two is non-accidents involve the loss of production assets or the loss of an operation, whether or not temporarily, partially, or completely. And obviously, accidents would be when you now start having individuals who are hurt or there's a loss of life. That is the real focus behind the database, and it's to show and demonstrate to create that balance between the attack part and the operations part. And again, bring the two together. Again, you don't have just IT and data, and you don't have just operations, you got both. Mm. 
I try to keep things up to date. Um, case in point is the recent Oldsmar incident for back in 2021. New data has come forward involving the former uh, city manager that was responsible at the time. He has indicated that it was not an attack. There was an employee error, was a keystroke error on his part, and fortunately they caught it before it became any, for, any worse. The point on that also is I will try to make an effort to keep the databases up to date as much as possible. Now, as far as trends are concerned, one thing that I've noticed significantly with the trends are that years ago, you know, way back when, companies did not have a problem identifying that they had issues. And this was probably before many of the cyber laws or cybersecurity laws, which are now currently in place today. Regulators are quick on the draw, uh, as well as insurance companies are quick on the draw to pounce on corporations if they mention anything that it was an attack, whether or not if their cyber systems, regardless if it's their enterprise IT environments or their manufacturing or operational environments, whether it was truly that. And so oftentimes now you're finding more and more and more occurrences where by law under SEC, if they're a publicly traded company, Yes, they have to admit that they suffered from a cyber attack. Problem is, they won't say to what degree. They won't say how much of the operation was impacted. Hmm. There have been a few cases here and there where there has been transparency. Case in point, 2019 involving Norse Hydro. They were exceedingly transparent. They mentioned every step of the way as they're probably trying to remediate their solution. And within a matter of two or three weeks, they had the matter of result. So you could at least follow along what was going on. When you look at other publicly traded companies, a good example, uh, Molson Coors up at Milwaukee had an issue with their plant productions, specifically their bottling uh, production. They suffered a, a problem. It did affect their enterprise IT, but you have to look for certain keywords. For instance, they had mentioned that they had to go to a manual operation. Now, this can mean things from inventory control or asset management, et cetera, et cetera. However, if you check the job records, meaning the, the company in, in question, and you look at their job records, you'll find out whether or not they do or don't have control systems. So in this case, <laughs> they had several positions that were open for SCADA engineers. And one of them was for GE Simplicity. So right there, I'm part of this is I'm making an assumption. And as such, I do state in the case at towards the bottom of it that there is an assumption in it, but I still mention the facts by saying, okay, this was found, this was found, this was found, and this was found. And I allow the reader to come to their own decision. I doubt if you will ever have any other database that will go to such detail. There is a similar database, but their focus is more so on ransomware. It's a woman based out of Pennsylvania from Temple University, and she regularly updates her databases. Nothing more than a spreadsheet, but she does spend an absorbent amount of time doing research, identifying the type of malware, identifying the type of attack meaning the method. Was it done via a water hole? Was it done via email? Was it done by somebody who visited a website or incorrectly opened a document? And she goes to those degree of 
details. That too is equally as valid because she demonstrates the attack. At some point in time, she and I are going to try to, the two together, where if there's ransomware involved with the cases I have, I'll then reference hers and consequently vice versa. There are some other organizations throughout the world that are right now currently referencing Skidmark, one out of Brazil and one in Germany. So I, I'm i not at liberty to say the names of these organizations because part of the problem is they're both commercial. Hmm. That's another thing. This is an experimental database because I don't like getting sued. <laughs> hmm. And so therefore, I clearly state, and it's stated one on every page, Two, it stated on the main page of the site, this is experimental, is for educational and research purposes only. That's it. So I hope to make some semblance of an impact as to the incidents. Now, as far as the ramping up, whether or not there's an increasing number or less decreasing number, believe it or not, it varies. Mm -hmm. A lot of it depends on what particular topic you're looking for. If you're looking for ransomware, there is a steady upward trend. If you're looking for insider in threats or insider information or insider attacks, for the most part, that is relatively stable. They may, you might bounce up and down a little bit. For the most part, it's relatively stable. If you look on accidental, operational accidental problems, that too is going to, to vary. And a lot of it is based upon what I can find. So there is a plethora of information. And again, many of the things that I'm finding today aren't the big companies. They're the little, little bitty companies that are out in Botunk, USA, out in, in you know Kansas or Nebraska or someplace like that. We have a one newspaper town and the water system went. Mm. So those ones, yeah, they'll identify them. But for big ones like Norse Hydro or Molson Coors or Westrock, blah, 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 blah. You're not going to get much information. And as a result, I find that I have to do more digging, more research in order to find out what all is involved. Mm. So far, so, what I do have available, people do like. Yeah, so the reason I was asking that is I talk to a lot of people like you will do in this space and opinions about whether we're doing better or worse varies depending on who you talk to. So um, I think we've talked about this before that especially big companies, so I'm talking about asset owners, but also um, vendors of products who are in control systems and then APCs, system integrators, if they have a cyber security incident of any kind, but especially in industrial control systems, it's not only bad news for them at the time, but it can have a big impact on their brand. It can have a big impact on their financial status, you know, on their share value. So you feel like that at a CEO level, C-suite level, they ought to be taking this very seriously. And I think they probably do. But I go to a lot of facilities and I see at the coal face what people are doing. And I I'm constantly disappointed by how well, um, how badly prepared people are, how badly they behave in terms of cybersecurity. So do you see that is one question. And then two, why do you think there is a disconnect between that C-suite and operations, if you agree with that? Again, it comes down to awareness. The thing is, is that the C-suite level knows one and only one thing, how to keep the company profitable. Liability and risk are going to be 
anti-profitable for a corporation. If you explain something to a C-level manager or executive, if you don't do this or don't do this or don't do this, this will happen. And that is the only way that you're going to be able to convince them. Number two, provide them with examples. And part of the problem that I continue to still see today are that both consulting companies as well as uh, employees of said asset owners, I don't find that they do a good enough job of communicating that to the C-suite executives. Number three, the lower management, all the way from the ground level manager all the way up to the uh, C-level executives, don't want the C-level executives to know that they have a problem because it will be reflected badly on their own performance reviews on their ability to obtain budgets and whatnot. But essentially, it all comes down to dollars. Mm-hmm. Here's, here's some examples. With the Norsk Hydro incident, their stock went down 19%, and it stayed that way for not quite three weeks. They lost almost half of their stock share over a period of time, meaning it went 19, 19, 19. They were able to recover But the thing is is that during those three months, they were losing money because Mm -hmm. their investors didn't have a warm and fuzzy feeling. There's another issue with a company called Westrock. They make, believe they are manufacturer of boxes. Their stock portfolio went down 34 points, 34%. And it stayed that way for about not quite one or two weeks. Same thing. Investors lost confidence. They're price of their public stock just tumbled. Again, they were able to recover, but during that time frame, they've lost millions of dollars from being able to do to showing that they were profitable. Now there's a third factor involved too, insurance. Some corporations are self-insured. Most corporations are not self-insured. So unless you have a big bank account to bail you out when you have a huge incident, you're going to be dependent on insurance, big corporate insurance insurance carriers. So Moody's is a good example. Lloyd's of London is another example. I, I just know those two based on several individuals that I have discussions with. Um, not to mention that there's also bond offerings for the companies too. So when you get, for instance, standards and pores, who are now giving you a lower bond rating for your company because you've had an incident where, again, investors don't feel confident that you are going to make them money. This is the only way that can be communicated because they only understand in terms of dollar and cents. They don't know what ransomware is, or they may not know the details or specifics about it. And quite frankly, they don't need to. What they need to know is if this happens, this happens. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's interesting to delve into a little bit more than so. Situation is that C-suite understands that there's a problem that could impact their business, but they don't really know the details. And they've got people in the organization who know the details, but maybe they don't understand the possible impact. I don't know. But you said a moment ago that one problem is they don't know how to communicate the problem to the C-suite, like what the problem is and how to fix it. That's one thing. And then you also said another interesting thing, which is they don't want to tell the C-suite because that's going to impact 
potentially impact on their career uh, performance career essentially which i was interested in because i don't know you would think that maybe if you were able to highlight a potential problem to your bosses or your bosses 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 uh, and then have a solution for it wouldn't that be a good thing if you said you know well, there's this problem but i know how to solve it and give me the money and i'll solve it for you so why would that not be good for okay. their career let let me counterpoint that several years ago there were, were not one, but multiple. I don't remember the exact count, but there were multiple NERC zip violations for an energy company called Duke Energy. They sustained a $10 million fine, and it is still holding today on record for the largest fine ever sustained or obtained by an energy company. They had multiple fines that essentially aggregated together to $10 million. Many of these problems extended years. So what does that tell you? That that would be a prime example where everything is remains status quo. They just keep going until they're tackled, you know, run until you're tackled mindset. Mm-hmm. Let's see how far we can get by with this without having to spend any money. And again, it comes down to mm-hmm. money. Right. So they were operating in a non-compliance. They were operating in a non-compliance state until somebody from the auditing company that was hired by NERC came in and found a plethora of different violations. Most of them were high. Right. So I understand that then. So what you're saying is that if you want to keep your job, the best way to keep your job is to say, I can do this job for as little money as possible. And that's the measure, if you like. And so asking for more money is is a bad idea in that situation because... Well, and here's something else. As a company that is tightly regulated, the people who don't lose their jobs, at least initially, are not the people down below. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the, to- the highest ranking manager or executive that's responsible for that chain of command. Mm-hmm. They are the ones that will suffer the most. And there are other sectors, like, for instance, the healthcare sector, they have a HIPAA officer. If a healthcare provider is found uh, in violation of HIPAA, and depending upon if it's, you know, high, medium, or low, that individual runs the risk of potentially going to jail. Now, I don't know how well that would work in the energy sector, but I would imagine whoever essentially is responsible for that, yeah, that would probably be career-ending at that point. Right, right. So this is a nice segue into another question I wanted to ask you. So you talked about NERC-SIP and you talked about Duke uh, and their non-compliance issue and heavy fines. So NERC-SIP, um, for those who aren't familiar, is uh, regulations for critical infrastructure protection for um, electricity uh, generators and distributors, right? So um, distribution, transmission, subtrans, so- and generation. So here's a this is a big <laughs> question we could probably have an entire podcast on. So regulations. So you work in this sector especially. You've got a lot of experience in this and you've been working in this sector, I think, before, a long time before even NERCSIP was around. Uh, so do you feel like regulations like NERCSIP actually help improve cybersecurity or does it even not necessarily not help, but even possibly make it worse? This is just my opinion. I actually feel it makes things worse. 
because part of the issue is, is that security is regulation beyond. So you have regulations here and you have security here. You obviously want to reach this state. Depending on which industry you're in, some regulators or some regulations will then pounce on the corporations because it now places them into what I jokingly call regulatory purgatory. And what that means is they're in a quasi-regulated compliance state. They're, they're kind of sort of compliant. But if you had an auditor that says, okay, you know what, it's either yes, you're compliant, or no, you're not compliant, chances are the auditor is going to go with no, you're not compliant. Mm -hmm. And so certain energy companies, we're not going to name names, they often will side in the air of caution. And so for them, if you do something that goes above and beyond what the requirements are for a regulation, they're not going to allow it because it will now place them in the state of non-compliance. As far as they're concerned, you have risk managers, governance managers, auditors, and compliance folks who know absolutely nothing from a technical perspective. That's where guys like me and you come into the picture. The problem is everything to them is the check mark. And if they cannot answer by saying yes or no on that checkbox, they're going to go with no. So, so a, a regulatory requirement is meeting the bare minimum requirement. Now, the other thing also is, and I want to point this out, and it's not just the energy sector either, because I believe the nat gas industry, and I believe also the petrochemical industry does this as well, is the penalty to having a non-compliant state is worse than the monies that would be utilized to making that environment more secure. Mm -hmm. So you would be penalized to be secure. Right. <laughs> yeah, so so I like that example of the idea of saying uh, organization recognizes the risk, identifies a way to manage that risk more effectively, but actually by doing so, you're now not compliant, which is just, clearly ridiculous and so there are st standards obviously like ISA IEC 62443 and what I like about that is not because I'm involved with ISA but ISA 6243 takes the approach uh, like a lot of good practices is to say you manage your issue whatever it is safety or in this case cybersecurity on a risk basis so you say you identify what your risk is and then you manage it according to the risk. So that works right. nicely because if you're a very large organization, like in petrochemicals, for instance, where you've got a high risk, high impact environment, then you need to put a lot of time and effort into it. But if you're a small organization with maybe low risk, then you don't have to put the same amount of effort in, but you still can manage your risks accordingly. So I, I like that, but I don't, I feel like, especially in the US, because uh, I'm from the UK originally, and in the UK we have the health and safety executive that manages safety in these uh, process industries. And their approach is to say, an organization has to present a safety case so that they say how they're managing safety, right? It's not a regulatory thing where you say, check the boxes to see you're doing all these things. It's more a case of, you know what your risk is, tell us what your risk is and tell us how you're managing that risk. And if we, read that and we believe that you understand your risk and you're managing your risk, then we will allow you to operate. And if you 
demonstrate that you don't know what your risk is or you don't manage your risk properly, then we'll have a problem and then we'll have to fix it. But to your point, it will be much more like what you described where you're trying to manage you know, safety up here and regulation is down here. So I think the same approach needs to uh, apply to cybersecurity, but we're, we're not there. Probably because, like you mentioned earlier, there are the people who are responsible for this, responsible for managing it, regulating it, don't understand it. So the easiest way for them is to say, oh, well, if we've got a checklist, then I feel good now because I understand yes and no. <laughs> so, so that's kind of like the simplistic approach to it, right? The point I wanted to make here, which is why I said that, is you work in lots of different sectors like I do, and I know you know what's going on in most of the 16 critical sectors that the US has. Uh, in the water wastewater industry, uh, they have not traditionally had any regulations to do with cybersecurity. The US water wastewater industry sector is quite unique in the fact that 97% of uh, systems in the US are very, very small systems that have very few resources and very few technical uh, skills and uh, competence able to do basic control system stuff, let alone something like cybersecurity. But because we still have this problem, you mentioned Oldsmar as an example, whether it was a external attack or an accident, sounds like it's an accident, but whatever, it's still a cybersecurity incident and we're concerned about those. So it seems like now EPA, their latest idea is to say, let's have process where states include cybersecurity in their audits of water systems that they do, these sanitary surveys. So it feels like what they're going to do now is a bit like NERC-SIP, where you essentially have a checklist, you go and you have a person who's there primarily to do the sanitary survey. Are you doing everything properly, treating the water and processing the waste properly, all these kind of process-related things? And then, by the way, at the same time, ask questions about this subject which you probably don't know much about so we'll give you a checklist and then you're asking the questions to a bunch of people who also don't know much about it so so you're going to get a bunch of no's probably to your point they're going to say well if i don't know the answer i'll say no and then we're not further forward so i just wonder what you think about like what could we do in the water industry that would help with these smaller systems especially i think a lot of it First and foremost is to make sure that they have their systems up to date. Locally in the town that I live in, I live in Geneva, Illinois, their SCADA system was only upgraded a few years ago. Prior to that, the operating system that they were running on it was Windows 98. It wasn't even Service Pack 3. It was, a, I think it was Service Pack 1. They were experiencing problems. They had to regularly reboot the SCADA system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The other thing is remote access. That, by far, I think it's probably one of the biggest hassles most of these water plants have is been with remote access. There have been a number of cases, documented cases, that have indicated that either malware has come in for those that were attacks or the other ones that are oops, where clearly was remote access issues. Case in point, Oldsmar, two years ago. Then you also have 12 years ago, back in 2011, with the Karan Gardner incident, because the gentleman who was working on their systems, at least according to news stories, was over in Russia. Mm -hmm. He married a Russian woman. They 
had children, they were on holiday over in Russia. The thing, though, is, is that in both circumstances, there still is no attestable data that can indicate whether or not it was or was not an attack. Mm-hmm. But that, not, you know, that notwithstanding, probably one of the biggest issues that I found out within the water sector is outdated equipment, outdated operating systems, or if they are current operating systems, not currently patched, outdated software or, or non-existent software. The case with Oldsmart, they relied solely on Windows Defender. As far as I'm concerned, that is not a firewall. To me, you have to have a firewall in between the computer and the outside. They even allowed just regular dial-up. So somebody could just dial in directly into the computer and have full access. Simple things like that would certainly help prevent egregious attacks against these sites. But as far as like the large municipalities, I believe Chicago is still the largest water district in the entire United States. And if not, I believe New York and Los Angeles, they're all vying for a first, second, and third. Mm-hmm. Those people, for the most part, are fairly secure. I won't they will say they're completely secure, but they've gone through all the necessary controls, for the most part, that the Mon Paws don't do. The other thing also is, is that with some of these water utilities, you know, it's a one-well town with a one-water tank, you know, population 400, and they have grandma monitoring the uh, SCADA system during the daytime. That, too, also comes down to awareness. The one thing that I really object to this entire process is from the past several two or three incidents, the EPA has been pushing further and further and harder and harder towards cybersecurity regulations. And I think the Oldsmark case was the coup de grace. It gave them providence to come in and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. I posted an article recently comparing, dare I say it, I don't mean to badmouth them, the government as to that of a vampire. Folklore says that. If you invite a vampire into your house, you give them free reign. Well, even though the government is saying, well, we're here to help you, are they really there to actually help you? Because I've attended numerous conference calls, cybersecurity conference calls, I might add. None of the individuals who were on those calls knew anything from a technical perspective. They read down a script They couldn't answer any of the questions. And the last one I uh, attended, the individual had a background in, you're going to love this, international affairs. What? (laughs) You're going to tell me that an individual who comes from international affairs is going to know something about cybersecurity? (laughs) What? So I saw that discussion on SCADASEC and I was going to follow up with about that because I know you posted something about EPA and the regulations and one of the people on the group said, but hey, look, they're saying we've got assistance, we've got training, we've got all of these resources that you've got that you can use to help you do this. And you, as you say, you battered that down with this um, 
analogy with the vampire. But I, I think what you said there is exactly right, that I've, I've seen experience of this help. And again, not to belittle the people who do it, but if you have people who don't know the subject intimately helping people, it's not really the help that they need. I mean, these people know literally nothing at all. And so if you're going to bring someone else along who says, I don't know it either, but let's all work together on this. That's not really what they need. I mean, they need to solve these problems. So you picked a few examples there. You said, you know, out-of-date systems, remove remote access. You know, I've got like uh, four or five things that I say to people that these are the things you've got to do on day one, right? But not only do you do them, but these are things that they can do themselves, right? So this is the key for me, especially with the water and wastewater sector is that if you're going to have improvement in their cybersecurity posture, they need to be able to do it themselves. Because otherwise, what the result normally is, is that uh, this com organization will come in and they'll say, we're here to help you. Here's a 250-page report that we produced after four days of interviewing you. And these guys just go, well, I, I don't know what to do with this. This is no use whatsoever. I mean, I, I, I'm not going to sit and go through this 250-page report and try and work out all this mumbo-jumbo that it says in here. And then they're just going to either do nothing, which is one option, or the other option is they call an IT company and they say, hey, we've got this work to do. And the IT company comes in. And then that's back to what you said way back at the beginning of this discussion is IT security is not IT company. Yeah. IT company. Yeah, right. So they're going to go down the wrong path. They're going to say, hey, we're IT guys. This is what we do. And then it's not it's not the answer. You know, so I, I you know, I don't know what the answer is, but I think the answer isn't like you said, they're, they're presenting something which sounds good on the surface. But in reality, it's not going to move the dial at all, which is really disturbing. There's also another fact. And this still continues to this day. There is a Grand Canyon, a rift between the IT, I mean, <clears throat> I mean OT guys and the engineering folks. Mm -hmm. Because engineers work with concepts. They come up with the spec designs. They show how the process works and have all these lines going every which way. The IT guys and the uh, OT guys um, do the actual configuration and setup and whatnot. When push comes to shove, as far as cybersecurity is concerned, it's not going to be the engineering guys. It's going to be the ITOT mm -hmm. guys. Mm -hmm. And the problem is, is that one says Ouija, the other one says VG. They're kind of sort of saying the same language, but because of their accents, mm -hmm. neither side, you know, they're kind of doing this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. The other thing also, and this too is something to take into consideration too, and I found this out with Oldsmar. I don't know if it's because I post this on the SCADA sec list because I did actually post this. The engineering company that had modified the HMI system at Oldsmar about three years prior prominently displayed an active screenshot mm -hmm. of a active live system. Mm -hmm. When I pointed this out, and it was in early 2018, when I pointed this out, within a matter of about two or three hours, it was gone. You can't find it anymore today unless you go to the Wayback Machine. Yeah. Right. I don't know how many times that I have gone to the smaller companies where 
either the engineering company or the OT security company has, again, prominently displayed, hey, look what we've done. Uh, really? I mean, I can understand if they're saying, well, we worked on their water clarification process. We worked on their chemical uh, injection process, blah, 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 blah. I can understand that. But when you start showing the graphical representations of a live system, hmm. Yeah, and another thing that I think you mentioned in the discussion about EPA and Oldsmore in that Skydesec thing, which I picked up on because I, I mentioned that uh, in uh, the book you reviewed, uh, that the cybersecurity issue at Oldsmore, everybody jumped on the remote access thing as being the, the, the big problem. But you pointed out, and I mentioned in mine, is let's not forget that whoever wrote the SCADA system didn't put in a very simple thing to say, if you enter this value and it's not uh, a safe value, either don't allow the value or put an alert in that says, hey, something's going on here and someone needs to check this because that's just engineering 101 to me. That That's the, you know, whether you do that modification locally or remotely, you're still going to have the same result. And it sounds like from your latest research that it could even have been a local uh, incorrect key press, right? So I remote access is not going to solve your problem. Two examples on there. One is for wastewater. The other one is for water treatment. So there's an example involving a town called Spencer, and they're based out of Massachusetts. And I used that town in comparison with Oldsmar, <clears throat> with Oldsmar, and I listed the two down in columns. The engineers had shut off the PLC to do plant work uh, for whatever reason, whether enough was pipe refits or whatnot, but they did plant maintenance work and had shut down the PLC. The problem was they forgot to turn the PLC back on. So when they cranked everything up, guess what? Suddenly now they get this influx of a large influx of sodium hydroxide. Now into the water system, it chemically burned a lot of people. There were people that ended up going to the hospital. I don't remember whether or not if anyone was killed, but there were a lot of serious injuries. Mm -hmm. Now, on the wastewater treatment side, there is one particular utility, and I just love bringing them up because they've come into the news three times. Burlington, Virginia. Their SCADA system was old, antiquated, out of date. And again, it wasn't all three circumstances involved uh, rain runoff. The problem was is that the rain sewage uh, rainwater uh, sewer system and the regular human waste system were all part of one and the same. So when there was an overflux of water, it mixed in with the sewer and everything went out. One of those circumstances involved misreading of sensory equipment, and as a result, they ended up releasing more water, more sewage into the, this local lake than what was necessary. Again, incorrect controls. There are some individuals that are talking about issues with sensory or telemetry devices. And it, it, this is not just in the water sector, it's in you know, plethora of other sectors. But going back to, again, your initial question, again, a lot of it comes down to awareness and, I hate to say this, due diligence. So uh, I know you're working on uh, your fifth edition now of your book, Critical Infrastructure, Homeland Security and Emergency Preparedness. So I think you first published that in 2006. So 
though that's long before even terms like operational technology existed people weren't even talking about this subject right so uh, as we said at the outset i mean you've been well ahead of this um subject for a long time but so in the time in the fifth the fifth edition you know so a lot's changed so what what are we looking to see in this fifth edition and uh, uh what what new stuff in particular one thing in particular and this just grinds my bones is right now people consider critical infrastructure as cyber networks really you're gonna tell me that critical infrastructure is only cyber Mm, that's not the case critical infrastructure is a holistic approach it talks about everything it talks about supply chain it talks about planning it talks about implementation and when I talk about planning, I'm not just talking the fiduciary aspect. I'm talking about the mega projects that takes has to be done in stages over multiple decades. There is a difference also between critical infrastructure protection and critical infrastructure assurance. The difference is one is, I wouldn't say offensive uh, or aggressive, but one is proactive. The other one is reactive. The thing, though, is is that in doing so, you get a complete holistic coverage of protecting infrastructures. But again, I need to emphasize the people who are on here. Critical infrastructure is not just cyber. It's everything. The other thing that I wanted to point out is not just supply chain, although that likely has become a really, really, really big factor because We now have supply chain issues, no thanks to the recent pandemic. But something else is now very quickly creeping into the picture. Climate change. Rapid changes in our global climates are seriously affecting weather patterns. I mean, drastically. This year, they're predicting El Nino conditions, which means in some places, you're going to have extremely dry uh, conditions. Other places, you're going to have extremely wet conditions. When I say extremely wet, I'm talking about flooding, severe flooding. Tornadoes, typhoons, hurricanes, locusts, whatnot. The thing, though, is is that we as a society are not even prepared even for that much Mm -hmm. there. I have an, uh, an example to this. About 30 years ago, Las Vegas, periodically, when they'd have heavy runoff coming from the mountains, it would come and would flood the streets of Las Vegas, like the main strip. They started, was either a 20 or 30 year program to build a large flood control system where they had set up these massive, massive tunnels to divert water away from essentially Las Vegas strip. What they didn't take into account to was weather patterns rapidly changed as a result of climate global changes. And as a result, the weather patterns were quicker and more rapid to change. The amount of rain that was dumped was twice or three times the amount. And by the time they completed their project, now they had to think about, okay, our tunnels aren't big enough. Now we have to look at either making them bigger or putting in additional tunnels. 
Part of that is having the foresight to look forward in the future. Believe it or not, it's the same way also with cybersecurity, too. Mm-hmm. There, there's a lack of foresight by, by without saying, okay, we're now placing everything in the cloud. Um, have you thought about security implications of putting everything in the cloud? Same thing. A lot of it comes down to proper planning, budgeting uh, for whatever plans you plan on doing. You know, everything nowadays is becoming more and more interconnected, whether or not if it's an infrastructure or cyber infrastructure, everything's becoming more interconnected. You can have one thing way the heck over here, and then it would affect something way up over there. Mm-hmm. And most people don't put the two pieces together and say, wait a second, how can it go from here to here? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I say that a lot, that maybe it's increased reliability of equipment, hardware and software and communications and, and other aspects that people maybe have experienced fewer and fewer actual problems and so they get more and more comfortable with the idea of doing things like putting everything in the cloud for instance um as you say that the problem is if you have a an issue it can have a devastating impact because you've you've basically got entire dependence on you know certain infrastructure right uh and people don't seem to think about that anymore they don't so if you ask them have you done a failure modes effect analysis for instance have you identified all the possible failure modes and have you thought about what you're going to do if this fails and this fails and this fails they they look at me like i'm some kind of crazy guy and so i feel i mean it's always nice to talk to people like you because uh i feel like i'm not alone anymore but often out there in the rest of the world when i'm working with people this is a foreign language to them. This reliability, availability, maintainability, all those kind of things. They know what they've heard of the term and they can look it up on the internet, <laughs> but they don't really think about it. And it's almost back to what you said about um, just simple stuff like the Oldsmar thing and the SCADA systems. Um, it's just basic good engineering practice. It's basic um, design. We seem to have lost a lot of that uh, somewhere along the lines. And I guess the end of this podcast for now, anyway, is like, uh, since we're all, we don't want to be depressed about this. I mean, let's be upbeat. I mean, what what, what can we do to help this? I mean, apart from raising awareness, what else can we be doing to improve this situation? I think looking at some of the educational uh, perspective. So, I think a lot of the issues that we are experiencing right now is, and I think you would agree with me on this as well, in many of the critical asset owners, most of the legacy operational systems, one, are still in place. You know, there, there's a comp sci approach. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. Engineers have something similar as well. I believe it's the same quote, but still. Many of the gentlemen and ladies who designed those systems are now gone. Mm-hmm. And the people who are replacing them don't understand the reason mm-hmm. why if I have something here, I need to do mm-hmm. something here in order mm-hmm. to get to here. Mm-hmm. The people who put this here did all the necessary calculations and calculations mm-hmm. to get to this here. Mm-hmm. Kids nowadays and their replacements 
all they do is they look it up, you know, on a sheet and say, oh, yeah, it's right there and just put a number in. But the problem is they don't understand why. Mm -hmm. That's That's one of the biggest issues. The other thing is the fact that engineering relies so heavily on IT and OT staff. Both staff have this mindset that, okay, it doesn't work. Reboot. It's like, wait a second, time out. You can't reboot an operational system. What are you doing? Same thing. None of them understand a PLC or an RTU, let alone even a DCS or or some of the sensory equipment, like the wireless heart equipment that's used quite heavily in the petrochemical industry. They don't understand that. So now they have to bring in consultants. The consultants can come in and quite literally flim flam them. They, I won't say that they do, but Mm -hmm. there's the risk of them doing that because Mm -hmm. neither the engineers nor the ITOT technical staff, neither one understand. Mm -hmm. There has to still be a meeting of minds between both sides of the fence. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, and this is just my opinion, I think that chasm has gotten wider. It's not gotten narrower, it's gotten wider. Because the people that are replacing the the old farts, the the white beards, they're just focused in their little realm right here. They could care less about the IT staff. And conversely, the IT staff could care less about the engineering. And henceforth, why I'm saying this gap is getting wider. And I've noticed that in repetitive conversations I had with numerous constituents in a plethora of different industries. That gap is what's going to be the most dangerous and do the most damage to our infrastructures. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So I think one of the nice things, I guess, of doing things like this podcast is hopefully we can try and raise awareness of these issues, this gap, this chasm that you're talking about, and help people see that that gap is there. And let's try and work together to try and close that gap somehow. So we could talk all day about this, and and I know we frequently do, but uh, I think we best draw to a close for now. I'm sure we can have um, another discussion uh, in the near future and pick up where we left off. So I want to thank you very much for your time, Bob, today. Really appreciate your insight into all of this. Um, Thank you to Derek and Bengt and all of those at CSEI for the opportunity to to put this podcast together. And hopefully it will be interesting to the CSEI members worldwide. So thank you again, Bob, and we'll see you very soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.